Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster. And I'm here today with Eric Reese. Uh, Eric is the founder of LTSE, the Long-Term Stock Exchange. Uh, he is also the author of the phenomenal book, The Lean Startup, which I am hoping everyone uh, who is listening to this has read. If you have not read it, you should read it. Uh, and as he reminded me earlier uh, today, he is the person that coined the phrase minimum viable product, which is something that I guarantee everyone who's listening to this has used. Uh, Eric, thank you for joining me today. Uh, thanks very much. Glad to be here. Uh, yeah, so it's great to talk to you. I, you know, I love doing these Friday in deep with um, episodes of the Daily Bolster because I get to talk to someone in a sort of less structured way about kind of what their career has been like and and what they've learned along the way. And um, you know, you have such a um, an interesting journey. Um, I'd love to start maybe uh, earlier in your career and maybe more quickly than the other couple of topics with what did you do before you wrote the Lean Startup and sort of what was the spark. Um, that that got you to that book. And then we'll talk about the book and the methodology, and then we can talk sure. about what you're doing at LTSE. Boy, I sure wish I could say I had some kind of master plan and I knew it all along. Um, the short version is that if you have your stereotype in your mind of the kid who uh, you know, grew up in their parents' basement programming computers instead of playing outside with the other kids, that was me. My poor parents who were doctors, you know, were very worried I would not be able to find any kind of career doing this and actually took them quite a, quite a number of years before they realized that this, in fact, could be a career. Because at that time, you know, programming was not not like considered a cool way to make a career It was a weird, you know, bizarre thing that people in basements did. But that, as long as I can remember, I thought programming computers was just the most fun thing you could do. And I couldn't believe it. I remember still to this day when I was uh, in high school and I found out you could get paid for computer programming. I was like, <laughs> I thought I was set for life. Yes, and so, it, turns out, it turns out you can actually get paid a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, and I didn't, I was like, I, I would have done it for minimum wage. I would have paid them for the privilege of getting to program computers. I had no idea it was like a, a thing you could, you could make things with that people would find useful. I just thought it was intrinsically a fun thing to do. And anyway, to fast forward quite a number of years, I was in college getting a CS degree when the dot-com bubble hit. And I, if you've seen the movie, The Social Network, I had what I like to call the first half of the movie of that experience. You know, we did we did all the cool stuff, you know, that kids in a fancy university trying to do a startup would do, but we did not have the second half of the movie experience. It was no need for us to sue each other because uh, when the dot-com bubble burst, so did we. And I uh, and because of that, I wound up coming out to Silicon Valley, and I was like, well, I'm going to apprentice myself to real entrepreneurs, you know, the people in the Valley who know how it's really done. And I did a startup out here that, you know, I was just a staff engineer for, and I watched them, you know, raise a bunch of money and set it on fire in the classic, like Silicon Valley stealth R&D, no customer feedback, big hyped up launch uh, debacle. And I thought, gosh, the only difference between them and me, these supposed experts, is that they managed to burn two orders of magnitude more money doing the exact same dumb strategy <laughs> I had done. So I was really disillusioned, but I was very fortunate that a couple of us who or refugees from that startup got to try it again. And we we were able to do things our own way, a different way. And we just thought, well, for God's sake, let's just make some new mistakes and see if we can learn something from the experience. And that ultimately the success of that startup and my work there, you know, planted the seeds for what eventually became the Lean Startup. Uh, and did you ever, did you have a moment, I, and, and this is true of a lot of authors, this was uh, me with Startup CEO, but lots of authors where you were like, hey, there should be a book about this. And you're like, wait a minute, there's no book about this. I should yeah. write a book oh, yeah. about this. 
I, I can remember exactly because um, I was a voracious reader, especially then, of business books. Because when I was when I was a founder, and, and I was a CTO before I was ever a CEO, but when I was a founder, I really wanted to know the answer to make sure I was doing things right. And most books that have been written about business just don't apply to the high uncertainty yeah. environment of startups. In fact, the advice they give you is the opposite of correct. And I, I'll never forget, I was reading, uh, I want to say it was one of the Michael Porter classic books. I don't remember, one of the classic business books. And there's like, whole, you know, you're like two thirds of the way through. And there's this entire chapter that's like, it's important to understand that a strategy is really just a strategic hypothesis. And it's very important to remember that when you put it into implementation, you're really, you know, you need to make sure to test to make sure that it's correct. And I was like, oh, finally, the part of this book that is relevant to my situation, the one thing I want to know. And it's like, end of chapter. On to the next point. Like it's not. It's like up to an exercise to the reader. It's not even worth mentioning. And I, I mean, I read every book you can name. You know, I read the entire Peter Drucker catalog. Uh, every every book. I, I I even found Peter Drucker's like ancient out of print book about entrepreneurship. So I was like, maybe the secrets are actually in this out of print book, but like, there's not that much in it. It's a really short book. It's perfectly fine, but it doesn't really get to the heart of the questions we have as entrepreneurs. So. I started to develop my own theory, not because I wanted to write a book, but just because as a practitioner, I was desperate to explain to people why the crazy stuff that I thought we should do worked. Like it, 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 it verifiably worked. We did MVP and build, measure, learn and split testing and continuous deployment at a time when that was seen as very weird. I mean, we had, we had investors where we failed tech due diligence because the way we built our startup was too weird. That's how weird it was considered. This is not that long ago. Yeah. And, you know, and I just, so I started and I, and I, and lean startup is not the first metaphor I tried. I tried a bunch of concepts on people. It was like, I need to try to explain what we're doing. I remember I had this very elaborate theory that was based on cell, uh, cellular respiration and the outer membrane. And it was like, no, nobody. And I was like, it's actually more like an ecosystem. And as I was trying to draw, draw these metaphors from biology and everyone was just like, what are you talking about? And it was, you know, it took a fourth or fifth try before I settled on lean manufacturing as the metaphor to use because the, the, the conceptual vocabulary of lean was so such a good fit for what yeah, we were I, trying to do. I actually but even then, I didn't think I was going to write a book about it. I was content to just have the answers myself and to use right. them in my work. And when I started to write my blog, you know, when I was started blogging, it was not considered a, a reputable thing for a startup CEO to do. In Silicon Valley. So I had to, I blogged anonymously because I was worried that it was going like, to ruin my reputation. Like, you see how much the situation has changed. And, uh, and on my blog, I would write these stories down of things that I had seen work. And the reason I did that was that I was being asked to give advice to all these startups. You know, VCs especially wanted me to come in and sprinkle my magic fairy dust of engineering um, productivity on startups. And I would get there and be like, listen, actually, I don't have magic powers. What I have is a better theory for how engineering work should be should be managed and structured in a startup. And they'd be like, well, like what? And I'd be like, well, here's how, you know, here's how we did it at, at this company. We would deploy to production 50 times a day on average and we would do these different things. And people would start yelling at me and like kick me out of there all, but really badly. And it got to the point where I was like, listen, you called me. By the you, way, that's, that's how you know you're onto something. Well, I know that now, but at the time I thought I was just really bad at explaining. I was so upset. I was like, why am I doing this? And I, it's just like, you asked me as a favor to come give you this advice and you're yelling at me about it. Like that could never work. I'm like, it's not some theory. I'm literally telling you what I witnessed with my own eyes. I'm not lying. Anyway, my brilliant idea was that I should write the stories down. And then when someone asked for a meeting, I would send them the blog in advance. And I'd be like, if you hate this, you think I'm stupid, please don't have the meeting to yell at me. <laughs> like, please leave me alone. Don't yell. 
<laughs> that's as much as I thought. And, and from the moment I wrote those ideas down, it started to go viral and just started to take over my life. And it was, you know, it was pretty soon people were telling me that like this needed to exist in book form. So yeah, it was, it was a very quick process from like people yelling at me to all of a sudden it becoming a thing. And did you, did you expect, like, obviously you believed that what you were saying was right, right? You believed it needed to exist. You wrote it down. Did you expect ever in that process that it might end up with the the following, the receptivity. I mean, it is a world changing book. Well, thank you for saying that. No, I I never imagined in a million years that it would turn out the way that it did. And you're, but on the other hand, I was very determined to win the argument. You know, I'm a very competitive person. I like to win, and I was really like as I started to understand why work was managed the way that it was and why we were wasting people's time on an industrial scale and all these other mistakes that we were making. Like I got pretty angry about it. So I was like, I'm, I'm determined to win this argument, but I didn't think it was going to make me famous. My idea was simply that like, if there's even one entrepreneur out there who I can help put on a better path so that they don't waste years of their lives the way I did, then that will have been worth it. That's, that's a sacrifice worth making. And so that was what I was really focused on. Now, what I thought was going to happen, what my understanding of how the world worked was so naive and so foolish. I thought that when you, when people talk about the marketplace of ideas and doing intellectual combat for an idea, like what would happen is I would bring my idea forth and then I it would do battle with other competing ideas. You know, like the, like the army of stage gate would like rise up and we would have, you know, and me and Six Sigma would go head to head and whatever. But like, that's not how it works at all. It, it just won. It didn't defeat anybody. It just, there was a massive intellectual vacuum around it, it these questions. Yeah, and people it. latched onto it and said, this is, this is the answer. And people actually latched on a little too hard at the, in the early days. Like people used to treat it like a religion. And I remember once someone called me and they were like, hey, I need you to stop. There's somebody who's blogging something about lean and it's wrong. I need you to make them stop. I was like, what, what power do you think I have to make someone stop blind? It's the internet. We have a free, it's a free country. They can write whatever crap they want. You know, yeah, I disagree, but like, what am I gonna do? Go, I'm supposed to make him stop. I can't make anybody stop. I'm not the Pope. I can't excommunicate him. But what do you, and like people had this idea that like, that there was this, like, I was this magical person with these magic powers. And it took, took me a little while to like really understand what is it like to be a public figure and what is it, what happens. But the most strange thing was the press and, and people kind of in the real mainstream they went from not giving the idea, not taking it seriously and thinking it was stupid to like um, saying that it was obvious and overhyped and they were tired of hearing about it without ever passing through the intermediate stage of acknowledging that it was correct. You know, it was, it was really, really interesting. And in fact, to this day, I meet people who, who are mad at me, who think that like, what, they're like, what did Eric Ries ever accomplish? We, we, you know, we had those ideas, you know, all plenty of time, like, we, whatever. It's just like, there's nothing new here. And it's like, okay, but you know, why are you mad about it? Like, so, so what? I'm like, what's, what's the problem? And it's like, you know, it's just such a classic thing where like the power of giving an idea a name and kind of helping the world adopt a new piece of conceptual vocabulary. Like, I mean, it's, it's a very small contribution to civilization, but like, I'm very proud of it. I'm like, I made my, I made my little mark. Like I, I felt really good. And part of the reason that's so effective is that even the people that disagree with Lean Startup have to carry the meme forward in order to make their criticism clear. 
Right. And so even in the debates that it spawns, but like, you know, there's certain people that are famous for thinking it's a bad idea and thinking you should do the opposite. But right. even you define, that- You set the terms of the debate. We set the terms of the debate. So so like now we can have it. And in fact, there are times when you like, there's things in the book probably that aren't universally correct. Like, like there are probably times when you shouldn't follow my advice or whatever. Like by creating the ability to have a debate, we empowered entrepreneurs to think for themselves and to make better decisions that was not possible before because we were just missing- the vocabulary that we needed to have the conversation in an intelligent way. And that's far more than all the people that have like religiously followed the book and had great results. The thing I'm most proud of is that, that little contribution. It's a, it's, it's not such a little contribution. Um, So you have written one or two other books, right? You wrote the Mm -hmm. startup way and then leader's guide. Yep. That's exactly right. Um, How, and so I have not read either one of those. I'm a little embarrassed to say, although I think I've read um, the Lean Startup three times. So hopefully I'm-, I'm that, count, uh, that counts. That counts. Um, what's the um, sort of, what's the essence of those two for people who haven't read them mm-hmm. or might not even know about them? And um, and how have they how have they done? Like, have, have there been pieces of them that have caught fire um, the same way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean nothing. I don't. I can't expect ever in my life to replicate the lightning in a bottle of the lean startup. Nor, nor do I aspire to, or even like that's not it's not a realistic goal to have. Um, what I wanted to do with the with the startup way was like the lean startup began an intellectual argument about how management should be structured, but it didn't really carry the argument all the way through to like what if you're an established company? What if you know how do these ideas apply at scale? Right. And so I wanted to really um, explore that and figure it out because one of the things I got to do as a result of the Lean Startup being successful was I got to go work for um, massive companies, you know, that wanted to reinvigorate themselves and bring entrepreneurship, you know, and innovation back into their culture. And also many of the early pioneers of Lean Startup, you know, became massive public companies themselves. And now they have this new problem of like, okay, how do I stay entrepreneurial and stay innovative even as I scale? And so to me, there was like a really important integration that needed to happen between this new emerging field of entrepreneurial management and the existing uh, knowledge and fact base of general management. And I really think like, I, I think that although Startup Way, you know, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a movement book. It's not, doesn't have the same kind of fervent following among people who have that problem. It has the same kind of impact that Lean Startup has had. Like, I, I think that people treat the bureaucratic kind of drudgery of big companies as an inevitability. And I think we we solved that problem. Like not, we haven't solved it in the world yet, but like from an intellectual perspective, I think we actually were able to develop a theory that shows how companies could maintain their innovative spirit and their ability to invest in R&D and invest for the long-term and invest in their people like for like over at, at really tremendous scales. And we have the proof points, you know, to, to show that it, it can be done. It's not... It's not as clean as the victory we've had with Lean Startup because there's it's just the first part of a multi-step process that we have to of like change that is required in our capital markets and our financial system and the broader culture. You know, it's not this is not these companies that don't change on a dime the way that when you start a new company you can start it however you like. So it's not I, it's not going to be the same kind of overnight victory that we have with Lean Startup, but I still very much believe um, in its in its intellectual foundations. And when I when I hang out with people from that community it's as important to them as, uh, as the lean startup. And especially when I spend time with CEOs who've been through that transition, that transformation, um, they, they draw on it quite a bit. 
And the Leader's Guide is, is not a traditionally published book. It is an audio book exclusive for, um, for, I did for Audible that is much more the like tactical book. If you're a leader who's trying to apply Lean Startup in a uh, in a company, it's kind of an innovative format of a book. It's partly you hear my words and, and stuff that I've learned uh, doing that. You also hear the you hear from various CEOs directly who put those ideas into practice. So yeah, I'm I'm always fascinated by innovation at big companies, and um, and this is a topic. There are a couple other people I'm interviewing this season that that are kind of in that space. The um, yeah, the thing that's always struck me as so difficult is like if you're a hundred billion dollar revenue company, or even a ten billion dollar revenue mm-hmm, company, mm-hmm. Um, for you to get excited about a new product, it has to be at least a billion dollars in revenue. Yep. Um, and nothing starts that way. Um, yeah. Right? Oh, it's, it's, a, cla- it's, it's a classic trap. And in fact, what I learned in my travels is that if you tell me how much money a company makes, I can tell you exactly how big something has to be for them to care. Right. Which, is, once, what, which is what? 1% of revenue, 5% of revenue? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, 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 it, it depends on the margin structure of yeah. the company. It's a little bit more complicated, but yeah, like basically, right. A fraction of revenue, right. It has to be like, a, it has to be a reasonable, non-negligible fraction. So once your size as a company grows, beyond a certain threshold there's nothing you can get excited about it's impossible nothing just as there are no overnight successes that make a billion dollars it's not possible so what happens then is in order to get a new product authorized you force your internal entrepreneurs to make what i call the fantasy plan that shows how overnight they're going to make all this money and that means that you're setting up every project for failure because right. every project inevitably falls short. Like if you don't do the fantasy plan, you can't get funded. So it's like an adverse selection problem. You only fund those people who are willing to lie to you about what the ROI is going to be and make unrealistic promises. You create a career incentive. If those people are still around in that same job, when the reality crashes over the fantasy plan, that would be bad for their career. So you create, everyone learns how to build these plans where it takes long enough for reality to become evident that they can be promoted into a new job before that happens. So it's actually devastating for the culture of productivity. You don't actually, you, you're not accomplishing anything. You're just, you know, people are just playing this political game, passing the buck. It's, it's, it's terrible. So you have, if you want to solve that problem, you have to create corporate structures where the accountability is to something else rather than just gross revenue. And that's really difficult, but Companies are capable of doing that. And, and the way you know they're capable is I always ask people, like, think of your, your least favorite company, you know, the, the public company you hate the most. You think they're evil, they're malign, they're sloppy, they're, they're whatever. I don't know, whatever. Pick, pick the telco or bank or airline. You know, you know, you know. For me, I always go to Philip Morris, you know, whoever, whoever, like, like someone genuinely evil, you choose. It doesn't matter who it is. Um, as evil and terrible and incompetent as they are, do you believe that they will or will not file their next quarterly report on time? Right, we know for sure that they are going to do it on time. So they are capable, no matter how incompetent they are, no matter how, they are capable of doing certain things with one hundred percent precision, guaranteed to happen. Now, why is it because human beings, in their heart, have a natural love of quarterly reports? No, because there is a massive apparatus in the company designed to produce this outcome. And I always talk to people. I go, I go to CEOs. I'll, I'll do these talks in front of the whole company where the all hands meeting and the CEOs there. And I'll just be like, okay, you know, who among you thinks that we could just fire the CFO and give that? Just like instead of having a finance function, we'll just we'll all be in charge of finance. We'll do it together. Like it'd be like that's how we'd be in prison in no time. It's like excellent. Now who's in charge of entrepreneurship? Raise your hand. And it's like no one. Oh, no one's raising their hand. Oh, we're all in charge. Oh, everyone's in charge of innovation. I see. In, case, in other words, it's not happening. Give me a break. 
So show me a person who's in charge. And they're like, well, we got this futurist. He's in charge. I'm like, well, tell me how many reports he has. Who works for, oh, nobody. He produces reports. Like, he just produces documents to help us inspire. Like, show me an apparatus as important to you as finance to produce the outcome you want. I will show you innovation happening on a, on a reliable clip in your right. company. Don't show me that apparatus. Don't tell me you're serious about it. Stop putting it in your annual report. Give me a break. It's not, yeah, it's not there. <laughs> not there. So, all right. So here's my sort of bridge question between the book and LTSE, which, which mm-hmm. I want to talk about next. Um, and you and I talked about this when we recorded our uh, shorter uh, podcast, uh, which probably ran a couple weeks ago as people are listening to this. Uh, so there seems something uh, in my mind, a little contradictory between the concept of minimum viable product mm-hmm. and thinking big. Yeah. Right? So your point in this back and forth is, you know, you're a big company, you actually do have to think big. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I would argue, and and you would argue too, that even if you're an entrepreneur starting something from scratch, you have to think big. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How does the concept of minimum viable product fit into the think big? Yeah, it's actually very subtle and it's easy to go wrong. And that's because um, our terms are ill-defined. So like, first of all, what is an MVP? Let's just be clear. Uh, minimum viable product is a version of the product design to test a hypothesis that relates to our vision inexpensively and with minimum cost. So it doesn't actually mean small by objective standards. If what you're trying to do is really big, you know, sometimes the MVP is also pretty big. Like, you know, and it depends on the thing. If you're going to build a combined cycle power plant, your MVP is going to look really different than you're building a dating app. You know, it's just going to be, it's going to be context specific. That's, that's important. But the second thing is um, where does the hypothesis come from? This is the thing that difference between minimum viable product and minimal product is that if you already know what you're going to do and it's small enough that you can completely understand it, just, you don't need MVP. You don't need pivots. You don't need to start up at all. Just go build it. If it's that easy, just go build it. We only need MVP when the hypothesis is bigger than one iteration cycle can produce. So, you know, if something can be built in a month, just go build it. You know, if it takes 10 years, you don't want to wait 10 years to find out if you're on the right track. So first thing that tactically speaking, MVP is a strategy for getting ourselves to the right destination in discrete chunks. And like a simple metaphor is um, you go get in your car and you're like, I'm going to, today I feel like driving from California to Manhattan just for fun. That's my job. So you put in, you put in the destination. I want to go to New York and it's like, okay, you know, it's going to take you quite a while to make this journey, but here's, here's the first step. You take the road. Now imagine you're driving along and your first, first time it says turn right. And that road is blocked. Can't go that can't turn right. You choose two things you don't do. You don't be like, well, I guess I can't go to New York because the road is blocked. I couldn't follow the instruction. I'm going, giving up and going home. Like, no, I don't do that. We don't stubbornly be like, I don't care. It says turn around, turn it right. I'm going right through. You don't do that. But the other thing we don't do is we don't turn to the GPS and say, robot, where should I go today instead of New York? It's like, no, 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 no. The job of the robot is to help us find a different route to the same destination. And that's what Lean Startup is really about at its heart. Pivots are a change in strategy without a change in vision. We realize that some part of the plan is blocked, so we find a new way to accomplish the thing we want to accomplish. Now, in real life, it's not as simple as the destination of New York. Right? Sometimes the vision has to evolve because we learn more about what the vision really is when reality forces us to choose between competing values. So you know, I don't want to make it sound simplistic. But the other thing that's really important about this is has to do with the language. So that, that's kind of on the MVP side. MVP is a tactic to accomplish a goal. The goal needs to be large for it to justify the extra cost of doing the MVP. Second thing is when we say we want something big, what do we mean? 
See, people in business have been really trained that size is a function of the trailing metrics, you know, the exhaust coming out the end of the engine. So sticking with my car analogy, you know, companies that want a billion dollars in revenue are like, wow, this engine I have running over here, my existing business, it, it spews out a ton of exhaust because it's going so fast. Therefore, the more exhaust, the better. And it's like, no, exhaust is just a side effect. The, the revenue is a side effect of something else. Well, what is this something else? If you And if you don't make this, if you don't explicitly understand this, people will put wood chips in their engine to create more exhaust to fool you. And that's, I mean, why do, why do we, why do VCs and corporate CFOs alike invest in this nonsense stuff from time to time? Like sometimes people really get really good at gaming the system, making it seem like they're on track. So what is the thing that's the, what, what is the thing that needs to be big? The vision of a working business is its own organism. It's actually alive. I, I personally believe it's biologically alive in the same way that you and I are alive. It's literally a super organism that takes in inputs and produces outputs and has its own destiny, its own, its own moral compass and all kinds of other attributes, which we can get into. But for our purposes, for Dines, um, when we create such a thing, what makes it large is its impact on the world. The impact, the transformational effect it has on all of its stakeholders. So in fact, MVP can be large, not in cost, but in impact. That's why at Lean Startup, we are obsessed with per customer metrics, metrics that could be the same at a small scale as at a large scale. So you tell me, I want to make a billion dollars. I'm like, okay, are you trying to make a dollar each from a billion people or $500 million each from two people? You, you tell me what you're trying to accomplish. Well, now, okay, great. You said you want to accomplish, you want you want to make a product with this margin structure, with this kind of impact, this kind of like, okay, let's go see if we can make that work in miniature, not because we don't, we're afraid of something bigger, but because we think that anything that we can make work small, we can then double, 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 double. And it's not that many doublings before pretty soon you have pretty awesome uh, uh, trailing indicators. So I'll just give you one example. This is one of my favorites from a, a big company. I uh, was working, I was in a, in a situation where I, Whenever I go to talk to a CEO and like they're they're you know big company and then I got all their executives whatever if, if at all possible I'll try to arrange it so like in the morning I work with individual teams and then I work with the executives in the afternoon so I got to start my day with people who work for a living and then you know then I'll talk to executives afterwards and the reason that's so important is I'll on the morning I'll meet a team like this team had this concept I won't get into what it was because it would be too easy to identify the company but like they wanted to open a certain number of locations of this new concept and so and they did a, a great pilot really classic MVP they opened 12 locations at a cost of two thousand dollars per location and the the revenue like the impact everything was really off the charts MPS scores were really high it was really it was really working and I was like great this is like, it was like congratulations you guys you made a really awesome MVP like what happened next and they're like, what do you mean what happened next? I said, well, that's the first part of your story. That took what, how long did that take? Like, that took six weeks. Okay, great. Uh, what, what you working on now? They're like, well, we're waiting for funding. I was like, excuse me? Wait, how long have you been waiting? It's been 18 months. So they found a genuine entrepreneurial opportunity, unlocked it, proved that it could work. And now they're, and I said, why are you waiting for 18 months? I said, how much money do you possibly need? They said, well, we, we put in a request for, you know, we did 12 locations at 2008. So for our first MVP cost $24,000. We put in a request for, you know, $100,000 to do five times as much. I was like, okay, great. That, that sounds like a really good request. What happened? They said, well, finance came back and said, gosh, with $100,000, how much money are we going to make here? It doesn't seem too big. What, what's the size of the opportunity? We said, oh man, we could have a thousand locations, you know, or 10,000 locations across the country. We could make a four. And they said, okay, great. So $2,000 per location, 10,000 locations. I see. Somehow finance had convinced themselves that they needed like $200 million in funding. 
And so, of course, the executive team got a debate 200. That, that's a big commitment. They, so in the meantime, while we're debating, they're not, the team can't get any work done because they. So anyway, it was classic like misunderstanding of what does it mean to be big. I sat with the CEO and all their lieutenants, and I told the story in front of everybody. And the CEO, of course, was horrified. He's like, "I can't, how can that be true? Who's, whose team is, I want this fixed. You know, get that. Because I'm like, look, if you just give this team $24,000, I'll go open 12 more locations. You could be make, taking market share from your competitors right now. And blah, 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 blah. The CEO's blah, 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 blah. Anyway, the funny, here's the punchline, funny part. After the meeting, four or five different executives came up to me afterwards, really mad. They're like, how could you do that to me? And I was like, what do you mean? It's like, I know what team you're talking about. Now you embarrassed me in front of the CEO. But I was like, but four different people did it from four different divisions. So I have four different teams, right? Of course, it wasn't one team. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think I'm the one with the problem here. Yeah. I don't think what I did was wrong. How about we don't run a company where we jerk people around like this? Oh my so God. like it's once you have the proper understanding, well, it sounds very abstract, but the proper understanding of this allows us to find and fix those problems with right. alacrity. It's really important. All right. Let's talk for a couple minutes about LTSE. Sure. Uh, when did you start the company? Gosh, it's been almost 10 like years. 10 years, now. right? Yeah, a really long time. Yeah, we yeah. put long-term right in the name of the company so yeah, people exactly. wouldn't be confused about how easy this was going to be. So um, what was the vision on day one? What's the vision today? Because it changed. And where are you on the journey? Yeah. If you want to learn, you want to you want to learn the true origin of the story, you actually can go pick up your beat up old copy of the Lean Startup. If you turn to the very last pages of the very last chapter, I, I have some ideas for future directions of how we should improve our industry and ecosystem. And this is one of the ideas that I threw out there. And what's funny about it is, is in the years since, you know, Lean Startup became such a phenomenon, almost every idea in that book has been picked over. Someone's gone and tried it with one exception. No one ever tried the long-term stock exchange. It was like too crazy, too ambitious, too you know, too difficult. And now having done it, I understand why. I'm not saying they were wrong. It's really quite painful. Um, and I just felt like I had to at least give it a try myself. So the original vision was let's bring long-term oriented companies together with long-term oriented investors and restructure corporate governance and investment rules to um, incentivize long-term thinking. That's a pretty unsophisticated way of talking about it because I didn't know anything at that time. So if you go read the book, that's what you'll see. It has some ideas about how that could work. You know, now I think I have a much more sophisticated understanding of it. You know, it's more complicated than what I what I laid out. But the, but the vision is still basically the same, which is that we have to restore the primacy of long-term thinking as a virtue in our culture, especially in our business culture, especially in the capital markets. Like this short-term behavior is destroying companies. And because they're so big, it takes a while for the damage to be evident, but you, but it's very clear in the evidence, like corporate tenure is going down, CEO tenure is going down, executive compensation is way up, activist investor AUM is going way up. Like it's it's a mess. People who, who profit by transaction volume love it, but none of our other stakeholders do. You know, like if you look at the world around us, it's a mess. And part of the reason is our public companies are mismanaged. And it's probably costing the US economy at least a trillion dollars, if not more. Like we're, it's, it's a very, very serious problem um, of lost opportunity. So the idea of the long-term stock exchange is simply to have an exchange where those corporate governance principles are embodied as listing standards so that companies that actually care about this stuff can make those commitments in a way that investors can believe and therefore incorporate into their investment thesis. And vision today, same as vision on day one? Well, I, if you notice, I described the same thing two different ways. And so, you know, there's some elements of that are the same. Others are a little bit different. I think um, overall, I would say the core of it is the same. 
but um, you know, the, the way we get there is a little different. Uh, what is MVP for an audacious stock, like a stock exchange? Yeah, no, stock I, exchange I really, really works if there's a ton of liquidity, which means there are tons of buyers and tons of sellers. Yep, yep, yep. So, uh, I spent years of my life trying to solve that problem because I wouldn't, I wouldn't do the company if I couldn't find a path to do it right. You know, to, I had to find the path to MVP, and it took me probably four or five years. I mean, this is just not to undersell it. Like it took me a really long time just to figure out intellectually how what, how what we were talking about was even possible. And I eventually discovered that the way that stock exchanges work today, they are interlinked through something called the national market system, which means that stock ex stocks that are listed on one exchange actually can trade on other exchanges and vice versa. So we were able to find a way to create an MVP market that um, allows the companies that list with us to access the full depth of public market liquidity without having to have without having that chicken and egg dynamic. But the cost of doing that was we had to really figure out how to build a proposal that would fit within the regulatory framework of the national market system, which was not not at all uh, not that obvious. But I'll never forget. I was meeting with a lawyer who finally explained this to me. And I was like, probably I just, with, you probably met with more lawyers. Than well, lawyers. I met with more lawyers than you could possibly yeah. imagine. Yeah, that's true. But one, one conversation sticks out of my mind because I was, I was asking people at this time, this is six, seven years ago now, how do you start a new stock exchange? Like no one really knew how to do it. It doesn't happen very often. It's kind of a rare, a rare occurrence. And finally, I met a lawyer who was knowledgeable enough to be like, oh, you just, you got to fill out form one. And I'm like, I don't understand what you mean. What's a form one? He's like, you got to fill out a form one application. It's like, what's a, I don't follow. It's like, you understand how government forms are all numbered? I'm like, yeah. It's like, well, SEC form number 001 is the application to establish a national securities exchange. Like, it's just a form. And I was like, I could just fill out a form. And like, yeah, no, you know, it's 400 pages long. It's a really complicated and difficult form. It took me years of my life to fill out this form. But like, it's not magic. It's a form. It's a piece of paper. Like, people treat our markets and, and our, all of our civic infrastructure in this country as if it was like handed down by Moses on stone tablets, but it's not. It's, crazy. it's run by four human beings. You know, it can be changed when, uh, when appropriate. So like once I understood that there was this path to do it, you know, then, then it was just a question of like, how do we assemble the resources and the team necessary to build the MVP of the thing that could pass this, this bar? And, and listen, the first thing I tried didn't work. I mean, it took several tries. So, so yeah, we learned, learned a ton from those initial MVPs. And where is it today? So we got uh, two years ago, we got the SEC approval to operate as an exchange and we did our first listings just over a year ago. Um, so that but we, our investors call it a two miracle company, you know, like not just one, not just one, but two, two impossible things had to happen to make it work. Um, so we were able to do both those things. We raised our series C, um, uh, last year. So, you know, we were finally well capitalized and financed to, to actually go try to make it into a real business, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a real operating thing. We can list companies. We have trading volume, you know, it's, it's actually happening. It's pretty exciting. And what, so what is the ball? Like how many companies or how, how do you measure the, the size? Um, of we, so we have, we have two companies that are listed at, at this time, which, you know, Compared to our the incumbents who have thousands, it's not very many. But compared to how many people thought we would be able to list, uh, is actually is, is actually quite a bit. So it's not yet. You know, we're not yet operating at high volumes, but you know, this is more of a proof of concept, and we're you know now have to build out the infrastructure to be able to show that this is uh, this is a better way. But I will say again to the theme of MVP, the most important thing is to look at what has been the experience of those first companies. 
right? It like listing with us has had made a material impact on their customer perceptions, their employee perceptions. And the most important thing to me, we, we have a scoring mechanism, an algorithm that scores how long-term is the ownership of a company. If you're, the, the, the evidence is really strong that you can shift your cap table ownership from more short-term to more long-term investors that has really material impacts on your stock price and a bunch of other good things down the road. So we've been able to show, I, I don't think this data has been published yet, so I got to be a little careful what I say, but the preliminary data is looking really positive that this has had a materially positive impact on these companies. Yeah, that's, that's, not, that's not hard to believe, right? I mean, the, the venture capital world produces a lot of value over a long period of time because it's very, tends to be very patient capital. The private equity has to be. world, the private equity world, you know, has a, usually a much narrower box, right? They're willing to hold a company for three years or four years, which is not flipping it overnight, but it's also, you know, a, a, a shorter term view. And then, you know, hedge funds will own something for a millisecond. Um, yeah. And it's it'd be interesting to look at sort of a curve of uh, mm -hmm. of true long term value creation, not just EBITDA creation, but long term value creation. Yeah, if um, if you extend the, the research I've seen is pretty pretty compelling that if you extend the horizon out, it's just it's a source of of real strategic advantage. Just the companies and the investors that have that philosophy, they they can outperform if you're willing to extend your time horizon yeah. out to you know to look at those rewards. And and unfortunately. There's so many ways to make money without having that long-term accountability that there's plenty of people that make plenty of money doing it the other way. But but if you change the question from who's making money to who's really creating value, I think it's unequivocally clear what's going on. All right. So one final question for you. Um, you wrote the book before you started the company, right? So you were already lean startup guy, minimum viable product guy, but now you've lived it for 10 years as founder. Um, what do you know now that you wish you had known at the beginning of the company you know maybe you wish you would put it in the book too but what yeah, do you, yeah, yeah exactly. what do you now from like know now from a decade of of toil um that you wish you had already experienced or known yeah i should probably write a whole nother book which is like guy who thinks he's a startup expert goes back into the startup seat and you know and hilarity ensues because of course the problem the problem with all books I and mean, especially business books is like you make it sound easy and I tried really hard not to do this with Lean Startup. I mean, I tried, it was full of passages where I was trying to write about how difficult it is and the, you know, I'm not, but like the whole point of writing a book is to summarize, you know, human lived experience and make it exciting and fun to read and, you know, and, and not a slot. Like, the more you make the, a, a good book, the more you are in some ways, like you're, you're losing a, a certain qualia of like the real pain of doing entrepreneurship. So going back into it after writing the book has been really terrible. I mean, it's like, you realize like, yeah, it's so easy to say these things. It's really, they're really hard to do. And I would say like the, it's not like it's missing from the book, but if the book actually tried to explain how relentless you have to be to get these things, it just, the book would be boring. It'd be boring and negative and bitter and people like, what's wrong with it? It's just like, no one would read it. No one wants to read about how hard this is. No one, no one wants to apply, you know, like the, I can't remember who someone's got the quote about entrepreneurship that it's like chewing glass and your reward is that eventually you you learn to like the taste of your own blood. You know, it's like you don't spend it's just like you 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 learn to endure the pain. Like that's that's part of what it is. And and that's why it's why it's only worth doing if you're trying to accomplish something big and long term. Right. Like I just always tell people if your goal is to make money, like there's there's just better ways to do it. If that's what your goal. You're not gonna you're not gonna be able to to endure the kind of um, the anxiety and the stress and the difficulty of it. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention one other thing, which I really didn't have an appreciation for at all when I wrote The Lean Startup. And in fact, that is one thing where like, 
I might write it differently if I was writing it today. It probably wouldn't be as good, but I would I would want to temper this one thing. There is a there's a real like a genuine mental health crisis in the entrepreneurial community and, and among investors too, for that matter, um, that we don't talk about very much. And, and there started to be some discussion about it around the idea that like it's stressful to be running a company that might fail. That is the source of one of the like mental health problems. It's just it's, it's very stressful, and not everyone. And not everyone has the right coping mechanisms and the right support system to, to handle that stress. And we don't talk about that enough. But there's another aspect of the mental health problem that you're starting to see with people who've been successful as entrepreneurs. Mm. You ever wonder, like, why are our tech overlords? Why have some of them started to just act crazy? <laughs> the ones that you can observe that are acting crazy, at least they have some outlet for the mental health problem. There's a darker side to this, which is like there are entrepreneurs. Like I was just someone was just telling me the story of someone who recently, like in the last five-ish years, I think, sold their company, made, a, made hundreds of millions of dollars and committed suicide just a few years later. Like it's it's a serious problem. And I think that it's hard to get people to be sympathetic, to be sympathetic with people who are so rich, you know, so like that's part of the problem. But I think there's there's aspects to this that are, we're not talking about that we ought to be. One is most people who make money as an entrepreneur, they did it by selling their baby either by literally selling it to a public company or losing its soul in the process of taking it public. And like, it's actually a very difficult thing to be rich because you sold your baby. Like that is not easy for people to do. And there's a lot of folks who are quite miserable. In fact, some people who even still running their company, totally miserable because they feel like they're not actually in charge anymore. It's the company is not what they had in mind. They can't even imagine working there anymore. You know, it's pretty good. Like a pretty good gig to be the founder, CEO, God, King of the whole thing. But they would never be able to work in a different, like it, it's actually become a nightmare. And then you also have the phenomenon that is like, I think a little bit more hard to talk about, which is just the like unfairness of it. We, we distribute rewards. This is a tournament system where the rewards are distributed very unequally and not always really strictly according to merit. And I think people are like struggling to figure out like, how do I make sense of the fact that I've been given this incredible gift and all this money and all these resources and like, what should I, but like now what? And we've kind of lost the idea, like an older idea from previous generations of like character and virtue as, you know, as an important thing to cultivate, especially among the rich and powerful, like that to, for them to attend to their obligations to others and, and stuff like that. So as a result, the, the feeling of happiness is short-lived. Only so many private planes and fancy boats and stuff you can buy until there's a certain vapidity that, that, that kicks in. And so you, I think you're seeing in some of these crazy people like the need to try to find significance in that situation, in a very unjust situation. And it's much easier to turn that negative eye on other people and, you know, retreat into criticizing others and be, be you know, doing all this incendiary stuff instead of turning the eye inwards to say, wait a minute, what role have I played? And I think like that's, that's for a lot of these folks, it's going to end badly. So I think we got to be a little more serious about, you know, just, you know, I call it institutionalizing your intentions. Like, why do we get into this in the first place? And how do we make sure that that super organism, this beautiful thing that we give birth to, that we're a good parent to it, we allow it to grow and thrive the way it ought to. And I still think that when we do that, we do that right, we'll still make lots of money for all our stakeholders, but we'll do it in a way that is far more just and will allow us to sleep a lot better at night. Yeah. And look, you know, extend the parent metaphor, right? Um, when you send your kid off to college, um, and then when your kid graduates from college, what you hope is that you have done a good job of creating something that can live without you. Bingo. Eric Reese, author of The Lean Startup, founder of LTSE. Thank you so much for being with me today.
Oh, it's my pleasure. It was a great conversation and, and glad you're doing this new show. 